listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Failure and success are very different, but they have something in common. They both begin in the same place. Failure and success germinate in the same place, the secret recesses of our minds and our hearts. That's where success begins. That's where failure begins, all in the mind and in the heart. And it really does come down to whether or not you ask the right questions. If you're not asking the right questions in life, you can go down the road of failure. You can miss success. You see, failure, the seeds of failure are sown in the wrong questions. The seeds of success, by contrast, are sown with the right questions. If you ask the right questions, spiritually speaking, you'll come up with the right solutions, spiritually speaking, and that's what I want to talk about today. That's what we're going to look at today, how to succeed, not just in life, but first and foremost with God. How to succeed with God. Because if you succeed in any area of life, if I succeed in any area of life, but we have failed, we fail in succeeding with God, it won't matter what other success we've had. Because failure with God, success with God, impacts everything. And I mean everything. And so what I would like to do is I would like to present to you two fundamental questions that need to get into the fabric of who you are. Two fundamental questions that need to become part of the DNA of your life. I'm going to give you these two questions, and if you're smart, you'll write these questions down. And if you're really smart, you will not only write these questions down, but you will begin to incorporate them in every day of your life. You will ask these questions in the morning when you get up. You will ask these questions at night before you go to sleep. And in between that sandwich of your day, you will ask these two questions every place you go, everywhere you see things happening, everything that you're taking into your ears, everything you're sensing and feeling and thinking, you will ask these two questions. They will change your life. These two questions will change your family. These two questions will change what's happening in your work environment, whatever your career is, whether you like your job or you hate your job. These two questions will change what's happening at the workplace. These two questions will change what's happening in the body of Christ, in the church, this local church and every single church on the planet. In fact, these two questions will impact and transform what's happening in a nation. Are you ready? Because they're going to change your life. The first question is this. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing around me? What is God saying and doing? You need to ask that question because it affects the next question. The second question that you need to ask and you need to answer is, how do I best respond to what God is saying and doing around me? Those two questions, their presence or their absence, will determine your success with God 
or your lack of success with God. And as our success with God goes, so goes every area of life. You need to ask and answer those two questions. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing around me? Are you paying attention? Because life is happening. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing? Secondly, how do I respond to what God is saying and doing? If you get into the practice of asking those two simple questions in your life, If you get into the practice of asking those two simple questions in your family, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, children, your relationship with your parents, if you get into the practice of asking those two questions at the workplace, in your career, whether you're a manager or a supervisor or subservient, whatever the case might be, manual labor, mental labor, it doesn't matter whether you sit at a computer or whether you're on your feet all day long. Ask those two questions. It will transform your work environment. And in the church, this is the irony of ironies because we fail to ask these two questions. The leaders of a church need to continually ask and answer these questions because these two questions, their presence or their absence will change the direction of the church. And I'm not saying this because I want some eloquent message, if if it can even be described as eloquent, some catchy message on a radio station or on a podcast. I'm asking these questions because we've got to ask them as leaders in the church. They will determine whether or not a church gives Jesus what he wants or whether or not a church is just a, a culmination of busyness and activities and human doings rather than human beings. God. What is it that you're saying and doing? Because we as leaders need to discern that. And secondly, God, how do we respond to what we see you doing, what we hear you saying? If you're a church leader and you're not regularly asking those questions, you will never lead the way you otherwise would lead. You will never succeed the way you would otherwise succeed as a leader in the church because those two questions determine the rising or the plateauing of a church. The church does not exist for you and me, for mere mortals, to get together and to have discussions about, well, I think this, and you think that, and we think this. The real question at the end of the day that we need to answer is, well, what does God think? What is God saying? Do you understand that your ability to lead in your family, my ability to lead as a pastor of the church, the the ability of you to influence, leadership is influence, is directly impacted by whether or not you ask the right questions. If you don't ask the best questions, because there are a lot of them that you can ask, if you don't ask the best question possible, you will not get the best answer possible. And the best answer that determines everything else in your life and mine, the number one question that we need to be asking in our lives, you need to ask it in your personal life. I need to ask it in my personal life continually. This is not a one and done thing. It's perpetually throughout the course of the day. You need to ask the question, God, what is it that you're saying and doing? You need to follow that with this question. God, what is it that I need to be doing to respond to what you're saying and doing? Because God is the initiator in our lives. It's not what we're doing for God. It's what he is doing on his behalf. And the mystery of God, this is the mystery of God. 
I don't understand this, neither do you, but it should make us marvel nonetheless. God doesn't have to invite you, he doesn't have to invite me to build something, but God has done that. It's not like God says, well, I I want to build my kingdom, and I guess I don't have anybody else to look to. No, he wants to involve you and me in building something, and not just anything. Are you ready? It's not just anything that God wants to build. God wants to build, and he is building, something eternally significant. The only thing that will last forever. It's his kingdom. And somehow, this should excite you if you really understand it. God wants to use you and me, mere mortals, to build his eternal kingdom. He wants to do that. It's not an afterthought. God likes to build things that he has designed. And he's designed you and he's designed me in his image. He wants to build his kingdom with you and with me. That's the beauty of God. Well, in order to build that kingdom, in order to to succeed in building that kingdom, in the way that God wants that kingdom built, so that we hit the bullseye, is to make sure that God is really in the building process. Is God in the building process of your family? It's not a mystery. You can know for sure. If you're asking God, what are you saying and doing in our family? If you're asking and answering, God, how do we best respond to what you're doing and saying in our family? Husbands, you need to be asking that question. Wives, you need to be asking that question. Children, you need to be asking that question of, and, and having your parents help answer that question. Parents, you need to help your children understand that question. We need to be asking it in the church. We need to be asking it in the nation. It's not rocket science. God is speaking to our nation. But because we're not asking the fundamental question, God, what are you saying and doing? We're not adjusting our lives in this nation where God is speaking. We can learn by incorporating those two questions, God, what are you saying, what are you doing? God, how do I best respond to what you're saying and doing? We can learn and adjust our lives and avoid pain and difficulty and harm and hardship, or we can learn the hard way. How many of you can identify most of the lessons that I've learned in my life, I've learned through failure? Can anybody identify with that? So what we're going to do today is look at the lives of a couple of leaders, a couple of guys who were in positions of leadership who weren't leading very well because of no other mistake than they weren't asking and answering those two questions. See, I'm going to convince you the importance of those two questions. By the time we're done, you're going to finish hearing what we're looking at. You're going to leave here and you're going to be absolutely persuaded that I must begin to ask those questions in my life, in my family, at the workplace, in the church, and I must incorporate them every waking moment of the day. We're going to learn by looking at the failure of the leaders in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Turn with me in our Lord's Word. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. What is a parable? It's a story. It's a word picture that has one major theme, one major teaching. Now, there are parts of the story within a parable that don't necessarily have a one-for-one correlation. It is to be something that when we look at a parable, it's a word picture, it's a teaching that's unforgettable, it's a story that has one main 
primary nugget of truth. If you try to have a one-to-one correlation for every part of a parable, you'll find yourself at times getting stuck because that's not the purpose of a parable, okay? The purpose of a parable is to give us an overall main story, a teaching that has one main point, one main principle. And so Jesus, being the master communicator that he was and that he is because he's he'd been raised from the dead, he's alive, Amen. gives a parable to wake up the people in his day. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. The word vineyard will become incredibly significant in just a moment. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants. He leases it and went into another country for a long while. Have you ever thought that it seems like Jesus has not come back as soon as we thought he was going to come back? Hmm. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. The word servant is a bond servant, somebody who is totally given over to the will of the master. Okay? When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. He sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those servants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, the people listening to Jesus' words said, surely not. But he looked directly at them. When then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. See, Jesus being the master communicator that he was, the master communicator that he is, he looks directly at them. When you want to make sure that somebody hears what you're saying, you don't just say it, do you? In fact, that could be one of the reasons why you're not communicating as effectively as you could, as effectively as you should. We've all been influenced by dumb phones. You're talking to somebody and they're not listening at you because they're not, you're not making eye contact. You're not able to make eye contact with them because what are they doing? I have the tendency to do this. You're texting while someone's talking to you, but when you really want to communicate with somebody, when you really want to have your message heard, you make direct eye contact with that person. And Jesus wants the chief leaders, the people in leadership position over the nation of Israel, he wants them to understand, yes, I'm talking to you. And so because Jesus wants there to be no confusion, no mistake at all about who he's addressing, he makes direct eye contact. That's exactly what we see in verse 17. But he looked directly at them, right? And who is he looking at in verse 19? The scribes and the chief priests, two members of the unholy trinity. The scribes, the chief priests, the elders of Israel. They don't like what they're hearing 
and what they're seeing from Jesus. And so what do they do? They go New Jersey style on Jesus. They want to lay hands on him. What does that mean, they want to lay hands on Jesus? What they want to do is they want to throw Jesus in prison. See, that was the predominant way that the people in leadership positions were leading in Jesus' day. The people who were in the positions of leadership over the nation of Israel, because they weren't asking the two important questions, the primary thing that they would do when they couldn't handle God showing up, when they couldn't handle God moving, what did they do? They threw somebody in prison. Read the book of Acts, and you see how God responds when people, mere mortals, throw somebody in prison. God has a way of responding to man's initiative, even when that initiative is godless. Now, it's really bad when a person in position of authority, spiritual leadership, acts in an ungodly way, but it happens all the time. And the chief priests, the scribes, what they're doing, they are doing exactly that. For what reason? Why are they responding by wanting to throw Jesus in prison? Because, number one, they felt that if they did that, they could slow down this momentum in Jesus' ministry. And anybody who knows anything about Christianity is that the more you persecute Christians, the more the Spirit of God is poured out. The more you try to shut people up, the more God pours himself out. Unless, of course, we're concerned about the media. Uh-oh. Who would have ever thought that in our day, people as insignificant as those who are in the media would shut you and me up when we have a story to tell and a God to serve and the truth to be told? Why is it that we have let political correctness get in the way of our telling the truth? Something as inept and powerless as somebody with a microphone, somebody with a website is going to shut us up when we've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us and the truth of God's Word in 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Since when do we let somebody shut us up about the somebody the world needs to know about. You know why we've allowed it to happen? Because we do what the scribes and the chief priests, the elders of Israel did. They cared about me, myself, and I. When you start caring about me, myself, and I, you'll stop caring about the great I am. That's how you know whether or not Jesus is your everything. That's how you know whether or not you're really following Jesus Christ, whether or not you care about the opinions of people like the scribes and the chief priests, right? They didn't throw Jesus in jail. They didn't lay hands on Jesus because they're afraid of the people. Now, there comes a point where they coerce and they connive. We'll see that in our next time together. And they lie and they deceive and they get the upper hand. But these leaders, these people in the leadership position were failing as the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel because they weren't asking the two important questions. What is God saying and doing with this Jesus? How do we explain these miracles? How do we explain this teaching? How do we explain that the people are following him? He's teaching as one with authority, not like us. 
Because they weren't asking that first question, they weren't asking that second question, and that's what got them into trouble. God, how do we respond to what you're saying and doing? And see, if you don't ask those two questions, you could end up like a scribe. I could end up like a scribe in your personal life, in my personal life, in our families, and in the church. I could tell you story after story after story after story of church after church after church after church where people who had positions and traditions within the church, people who were considered noteworthy because of their position of authority, their position of influence in the church, and the tradition that came with it where people just automatically follow this person, you can fill in the blank, And then what happens is God begins to move outside of that individual. Follow me on this because this is more the norm than the exception. God begins to move outside of that person, apart from that person, and the people with the positions, the people with the traditions get jealous and they get angry because they're not asking the question, what is the Spirit of God saying and doing? How do we respond to what God is saying and doing? And it's the failure of those two questions because they lost their spiritual edge that leads them down the road of failure. And their road of failure is littered with bitterness. It's littered with unforgiveness. It's littered with jealousy. It's littered with stagnation and death. I'm talking about people who used to be spiritual powerhouses for God. And now they're train wrecks because they began to think it was about them. They lost sight of the reality that it's never about us. It's never about you. It's never about me. It is always and only about God. And if you're going to get someplace in your personal life, you've got to settle the issue of Jesus' authority because that's what this parable is about. That's what this story is about. It's on the heels of the question of authority. By whose authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus says, answer my question and I'll answer yours. You want to do the rabbinical method? You want to do what was common in Judaism? Ask some questions. Ask your question. Let me ask you a question. Was John's baptism from God or from man? And the nail-biting began by the leaders, the unholy trinity. If we say from man, the people will be in an uproar. God, to please the people. But if we say from God, then the question is, why aren't we following God? And so, because they didn't ask the right questions... The answers were powerless to change their lives. You've got to settle the issue of authority in your life. To what degree will Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who was slain but now is alive, to what degree will he have authority over every area of your life? Because it's that one area that you and I can hold back that will affect negatively every other area. It is the difference between succeeding with God or getting stagnated 
spiritually. And every area of your life and every area of mine is directly affected by our success or failure with God. And so we come full circle. Are you asking those two questions in your life? Are you asking as the leader in your family, whether you're a husband or a wife, God's called you to lead together, not to nag each other to death, but to lead together. You're on the same team, running the same ball, down the same direction to score a touchdown in the right end zone. That's why God gave you a spouse, and that's what you need to be doing. You're not at odds with each other unless, of course, you're at odds with God. And I'll tell you what will put you on the same page with each other, asking and answering these two simple questions. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing, and how do we best respond to what God is saying and doing? You ask those questions in your marriage, you won't care whether the insight comes from you or from your spouse. You ask those two questions on a leadership team in a church, you won't care whether the answer comes from the senior pastor or the janitor. One is not better than the other. They are simply different. Who cares where we get the answers from? Only that we get the answers and that they're the right answers because we're asking the right question. There are people who leave churches because it's not being done their way. Thank you. There are people who are bitter and unforgiving because something didn't happen their way. There are churches that split because there's a group of people over here who want it their way. And there's a group of people over on the other side who want it done their way. And in the midst of the my way or your way, everybody seems to have forgotten his way. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing? How do we best respond to what God is saying or doing? If you ask those questions in your personal life and in your family, you're in the church and as a nation and on the job, your family, your individual life, your job, and even a nation and the church will actually change. We need to ask those questions in the morning. We need to ask those questions in the evening. We need to ask those questions all throughout the middle because they provide a good, healthy rudder for spiritual success in everybody's life. You're welcome. Those are the two questions that will spare you spinning your wheels in your life. Thank you. Do you like the way I took liberty and just had you? Anyway, these guys, the chief priests, scribes, they're hearing the same thing that the crowds are hearing, seeing the same things that the crowds are seeing. could have had every opportunity to ask the same questions. In fact, even more so because Jesus brings them back to the same passage of Scripture now twice. The same passage of Scripture was referenced when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and is being coronated. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, and now he references it again. He references Psalm 118. Look with me at Psalm 118. Beginning in verse 19, this is the context of where Jesus is quoting the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It comes from Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19. And here would be the context that these scribes, these chief priests would be very familiar with the context. It says this, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you 
that you have answered me and become and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What an amazing passage of scripture. And that is the context. That's where Jesus is quoting from when he says, In Luke chapter 20, verse 17, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why is it that some people in the nation of Israel were recognizing Jesus as being their Messiah and others in the nation of Israel with the positions and the traditions were rejecting Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, the promised anointed one in the scriptures? Do you know why? Because some were asking the right questions and some were looking for the answer from God, and others made the mistake of thinking it was about them. You know, it's possible. In fact, I don't know that that's far enough. It's probable that if you're making the study of God's Word the number one objective of your life, and you don't understand what the purpose of studying God's Word is, to love God, and to allow him to transform you, you too can become a chief priest or a scribe. Any one of us and every one of us will go down that road. It is not simply about memorizing the Bible. It is not simply about studying the Bible. Do we understand that you cannot worship a God you don't know? Enter the Bible. The purpose of Bible study is to help us worship a God that we would otherwise not know. The reason why we have the Bible is so that we understand what God is like. We understand who he is. We understand how to honor him, how to enjoy him. And somehow the scribes and the chief priests and the elders of the nation of Israel, although they had the position of influence, they lost sight of the fact that their primary objective as a leader is to discern the leading of God. Because if a leader is not discerning the leading of God, where God is moving and how God is moving, then that person is not effective as a spiritual leader. That's true in your workplace because God has called you to be primarily not just somebody who puts in hours, but a spiritual factor of influence in the workplace called salt and light. Providing savoriness in an unsavory environment, shedding light in a dark environment. You might need to stop asking God to get you out of your workplace because of how seedy it is and start thanking God for putting you there. That was his plan. He knows that it's seedy and it's dark and it's dingy. And the best way to counteract the darkness is to shed some light on it. That's why he puts you there because you're his solution to overcome the darkness. He knows that you work in a distasteful environment. That's why he put you there as salt. Salt changes the flavor of otherwise unflavorable, if that's even a word, untasty things. 
But you and I have got to get into our DNA, into the fabric of our being, what was sorely lacking with the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, the question that they should have been asking with people who had opportunity to lead. See, that's what a leadership title is. It's an opportunity, not a guarantee that you're going to lead. Do we understand that? Just because you're an elder, just because you're a deacon, just because you're a lead pastor, just because you're a Sunday school teacher, just because you're an Awana leader, just because you're on a committee does not make you effective as a leader. It gives you an opportunity to serve the living and true God. That's what biblical leadership is. It is serving leadership. And the only time we get jealous and bitter and unforgiving is when we forget the purpose of biblical leadership. The way to take the position and the opportunity that God has given you and to maximize it is to embrace the reality of God, what are you saying and doing? God, how do I best respond to what you're saying and doing? And that's what might lead you to lovingly, not arrogantly, lovingly come alongside of your husband. We need it, wives. Proverbs says a nagging wife is like a leaky faucet. The drip, drip, drip approach will not work. But the loving look and the soft hand or the loving question, hey, What do you think God's doing in our marriage? Well, I'll tell you what, that'll bring the hammer of conviction under a man's heart just like that. And ladies, that melts us. Men, can I get an amen for that? When a woman who you know is living under your roof and is serving the living and true God and loves God comes alongside of you, I know because I get hit over the head all the time by the Holy Spirit through the gentle words of my wife. Who has every right to say them? See, God often is speaking through your spouse. In fact, that's one of the reasons why God gave you a spouse. So that he could get your attention. Not just to gratify our physical needs, not just to gratify our emotional needs, but to conform us to the image of Jesus. And when you shut down the other most significant person that God Almighty has put into your life to speak words of truth into your life, you're shutting down God, not just your spouse. See, failure or success in your walk with God can be traced back to the presence or the absence of those two simple questions. God, what are you saying and doing in my life? God, what are you saying and doing in my family? God, what are you saying and doing in my job? God, what are you saying and doing in the church? God, what are you saying and doing in the nation? And that second question, how do I best respond to what you're saying and what you're doing? Now, the reason why the scribes and the chief priests connected the dots with what Jesus was saying, we might not understand it We understand something today, actually, on the flip side, that they didn't understand. We understand how this whole thing plays out. See, the the servants, the three servants, they correspond to the prophets who were rejected in the Old Testament. And the beloved son corresponds to God's uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, John 3, 16. We know that in hindsight. The people in that day at this time didn't know exactly how it was going to pan out. 
but they did understand something that we, with Gentile eyes and ears, don't fully understand, and that is the vineyard imagery. The vineyard imagery that crops up here is taken from Isaiah chapter 5 in verse 7. Look with me at Isaiah 5 verse 7. This is why they became incensed. This is why it wasn't just Jesus looking directly at them that made them say, hey, did it just get hot in here? Did somebody turn up Jerusalem's thermostat or what? That's not the only thing that convinced them of that. It is the vineyard imagery because Isaiah 5 7 says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of armies. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So who is Jesus addressing here with the parable of the vineyard and the workers in the vineyard? The house of Israel. He's talking to the leaders of Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, An outcry. Jesus comes on the seat. The living and true God. The Alpha and the Omega. Israel's promised Messiah that's spoken of all through the Old Testament and affirmed all through the New Testament that we have the privilege of looking at that the Old Testament saints didn't have. And instead of the vineyard accepting the owner of the vineyard, they reject it. The stone that the builders rejected, yet it became the most important of all the stones. That stone that's put in place in the corner of a building or in the corner of a wall. It's structurally important. It's aesthetically important. It pulls everything together. And notice what Jesus says. If you reject me, I will reject you. One of the clearest teachings in all of the Bible, it's presented here. Luke 20, 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is one of the fundamental teachings in the Bible. Resist God, he will resist you. Submit to God, he will embrace you. What is the Spirit of God saying and doing? How do I best respond to what you're saying and doing, O Lord God? That's what gets you forward. That's what gets me forward. That's what moves us forward in our walks with God. Now, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John were doing something, and this is one of the ways, again, when we look at Acts chapter four, that we see the roots of Christianity are firmly planted in the soil of Judaism. Because in Acts chapter 4, we see that it's Peter and John going up to the temple because it was the hour of prayer. What had happened is they had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They hadn't rejected Judaism. They saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. And what happened was as Peter and John are going up to the temple area at three o'clock in the afternoon for the time of prayer to participate as devout, God-fearing, Jesus-honoring Jews, they pass by the beautiful gate and they see something that's not so beautiful. In fact, it's quite unsightly. And you might have had this reaction when you have seen Somebody who's down and out, somebody who's got maybe a physical impairment or maybe a little bit of body odor, who obviously has been 
down and out, something has happened where they're down on their luck if there's such a thing as luck, and they're asking you for something. Happens when we're in a subway in New York City. Happens when we're down in Philadelphia. Happens even when we're here in York. You're walking down a street and somebody cries out and we pretend not to hear that voice. We pretend not to see. We pretend not to smell the stench. And yet it's unsightly. It's Embarrassing to us. You think that person feels good that they have to ask for their basic sustenance? And Peter and John see a crippled beggar. They see an unsightly poor guy who calls out for alms. Hey, could you spare a little something? Because the guy had to be carried in. That's how crippled he was. And Peter looks directly at the crippled beggar reaches out his hand and says, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but what I do have is eternally significant. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man gets up and begins to jump up and down and praise God. And everybody in the area begins to see it. And the scribes and the chief priests and the elders begin to jump up and down and grind their teeth. Even though God had done something obvious in their midst, they thought that they had taken care of this Jesus character, that they had solved the problem. No, they created the problem because now the little Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ are doing what Jesus did. They're continuing with boldness preaching the gospel. They're gospelizing. They're continuing in giving credit and honor and pointing people to Jesus Christ. And they're performing miraculous signs and wonders to authenticate that they are the ones to whom the baton has been passed. That's why it was happening through the hands and the voices, the acts of the apostles. And it's in the context of this whole set of circumstances that we look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, look at this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? Because Peter was looking for God to move. Peter was asking that question, God, what are you saying and doing? I see a crippled beggar, but I see more than that. I see an opportunity for God to move through me. And this guy who denied Jesus three times, number of completeness. You want to talk about being dejected and feeling rejected. It's this guy whom God uses mightily to perform such a significant sign and wonder that we're still talking about it today. None of us is in a position to get so down and dejected about our failures to say, God is done with me. No, it's because of your failures and mine. That if we will simply cry out to God, God will use us in spite of our failures, despite our failures, to do great and mighty things for his glory. Don't you ever let what's happened to you up to this point in life keep you from the bright future that God has for you. If you're asking those questions, God, what are you saying and doing? And you're asking that question, God, how do I best respond to what you're saying and doing? You will be doing something for yourself. You will be scribe-proofing yourself. 
you will be insulating yourself from becoming a chief priest or simply having a position of influence, a position of leadership, when otherwise you would have the influence that comes with a surrendered life. And when you ask that question, God, what are you saying and doing? And when you answer that question, how do I best respond to what you're saying and doing? You know what happens to you? You are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit because he was asking the right questions. And that's why God was moving through Peter. Do you catch that? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, let those discussions that are ridiculous about charismatic this and Pentecostal that and God's not doing this and God's not doing that. You surrender to God. Ask those questions. God will fill you with the Holy Spirit and then you'll have anything that God wants you to have, when he wants you to have it, how he wants you to have it, and you'll be happy and you'll build the kingdom, and God will move and shake through your life. He'll move and shake in your family. So you ask ridiculous questions, you'll get ridiculous answers, and they'll lead you down a rabbit trail. But if you ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers, and you will succeed with God. That's why Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter let his failure be something that he not only contemplated. Sure, he thought about it quite a bit. I was even warned ahead of time. You're being warned ahead of time too. You're going to mess up. You're going to dishonor the Lord. But if you make it your ambition to ask the question of where is God moving and how do I best respond? God will always pick you up off the ground. God will always take you on that next place in your walk with God. God will continue to use you because you're asking the right questions. God will fill you up. And when God fills a fallen vessel with his Holy Spirit, heaven comes to earth. And when heaven comes to earth, your marriage is transformed. Not because something has to happen in your spouse, but because something's happening in you. When the Holy Spirit moves on a group of people in a church, that church becomes that factor of influence that we are supposed to be as the church. Salt and light in an untasty, very dark and increasingly dark world. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, Peter's being very direct here. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? See, it's an authority issue. How did we get the authority to do this? If if you want to know how this has happened, let me tell you this. This is Peter, the coward. This is you. This is me. This is what happens to us when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us. We're all cowards apart from the Holy Spirit. We'll all be cowards apart from the Holy Spirit. We'll continue to not speak to the issues of the day without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit asking the right questions, we will be transformed. And God will move through us. God will change and touch lives. So Peter wants to make it very clear. You want to know how we're able to do this? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Psalm 118, verse 22, Luke chapter 20. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then Peter makes it even more clear. He doesn't want to be mistaken at all. And neither should you when it comes to boldness for God. And I, wanna, I want this to really sink in. Peter could have let off the gas here. Can we talk about this for a moment? While Rome is burning? Peter could have given in to theological correctness. Peter knows that the Romans and the Jews, what they conspired to do against Jesus, he knows that, humanly speaking, Jesus went through a lot of pain and agony. He knows what's at their disposal. Peter could have let up on the gas here. There are things happening in our nation right now where Christianity is being increasingly targeted. Why are we letting up on the gas? If anything, we should be pouring the fuel of the Holy Spirit onto that fire to see what God does. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, we won't back off. We'll press in. We won't take our foot off the gas We'll say, come Lord Jesus. And it all has to do with asking and answering those two fundamental questions. What is it that God is saying and doing? How do I best respond? How do we best respond to what God's saying and doing? Peter puts the pedal to the metal. Not only does he say in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. But in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's not make a mistake about it. Jesus is salvation. In other words, Peter uses the opportunity for the physical healing to help people understand the spiritual need of the people. Your greatest need and my greatest need is not for physical healing. It is for spiritual salvation, the removal of every single one of our sins. That's why Jesus healed. That's why Jesus healed through Peter and John. The end objective was the salvation of the people. And Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, becomes an excellent communicator. This guy who was a coward becomes a phenomenal communicator. And he takes the people from where they are to where they need to be with God. And you know where people need to be today? They need to be at a place where they understand their spiritual need for the forgiveness of their sins. And they need to know that there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. And now listen, we live 2,000 plus years after this set of circumstances. I don't know which side of the fence you're coming down on, but I'm going to come down on the side of the fence that was closest to these events happening. I believe that Peter got it right. There is an exclusivity in the salvation that comes from God through the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Muslims do not believe in the same God. Ask a Muslim if God has a son. They'll tell you no. Peter used the opportunity to drive the point home so that there could be no mistake about it. The boldness of God 
God welled up in him because he understood the authority of God. He was aligning every part of his life. And this is the problem that we have on our individual lives. It's the authority of Jesus. That's what that parable is all about. This is the problem in our families, the authority of Jesus Christ. We think we know better than God about a variety of things. And I wish I could say that that wasn't the case in the church, but the reason why our society is in such difficult situation as it is is because we in the church are more concerned about the opinions of men than the filling with the Holy Spirit. You can be filled with as much of the Holy Spirit as you're willing to put up with, providing you just adjust your life to the authority of Jesus Christ. There's a direct correlation to the authority of God in your life and the movement of God in your life. Direct correlation between the movement of God in your family and the decision that you've come down to on a day-by-day basis as to who's going to rule and reign in your house. Same true, I'm putting myself, I'm inserting myself in there. There's a reason why God isn't moving in our churches because he's not moving in our lives, he's not moving in our families, and the reason why God's not moving in our lives, the reason why God's not moving in our families, we're not asking those two questions. God, what is it that you're saying and doing? God, how do I respond to what you're saying and doing? In Acts chapter 4, after he says there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, this was the response. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. See, here's the impact of what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. When I am filled with the Holy Spirit, when your family is characterized by the filling in the Holy, with the Holy Spirit, when a church is characterized by the filling with the Holy Spirit, it is unmistakable. If you have to sit there and wonder, well, are you filled or aren't you filled? You're probably not filled. There are consequences, visible tangible, unmistakable evidences of the filling with the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see right here in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were beside themselves. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus I don't know about you, but most of us are in those shoes. We are uneducated, unschooled, ordinary people who are not worthy of a second look. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us, the world begins to take a second look, and that's what needs to happen today in our world. The world's not giving us a second look because there's nothing worth looking at. But you take a man, you take a woman, you take a family, you take a church, and you get those people concerned about what is the Spirit of God saying and doing? How do we best respond to what God is saying and doing? And then the world will take that second look. Then we will get their attention because it's not us garnering for the attention. It's almighty God making his appeal through unschooled, ordinary, common, otherwise good-for-nothing people. Because when you ask that question, God, what are you saying and doing? When you ask that question, how do I best respond to what you're saying and doing? You're no longer good-for-nothing. You're good for everything when it comes to being salt and light and changing 
Whatever part of the world, whatever situation, wherever God has placed you, success with your walk with God, success in your walk with God really does come down to asking the right questions. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.